I'm Hera. And I'm Aisha. And we are the Mocha Single Mothers by Choice, or SMCs. Like you, as SMCs, we decided to become mothers knowing we'd be the sole care provider and parent of our children, at least at the outset. And the Mocha is for Black. We discuss being SMCs from an intentionally Black lens. You'll connect with all the interesting and fun things about this non-traditional path. Like how you decide which sperm to use, the cold, hard truth of fertility, your reality of dating as a single mother who doesn't have a co-parent to rely on for occasional childcare, and what it's actually like to parent as an SMC. This is the Mocha Single Mothers by Choice podcast. Hi, Pod. We are so excited to bring you a very special episode today. We have invited Jane Mattis, a single mother by choice and New York City psychotherapist, the founder of Single Mothers by Choice, SMC. Jane founded the first single mother by choice platform in 1981, soon after having her son. She is also the author of the book, Single Mothers by Choice, a guidebook for single women who are considering or have chosen motherhood and has overseen the growth of the SMC of SMC from the original chapter in New York City and chapters throughout the US and internationally. So Jane, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your story? Sure, thank you. I accidentally conceived my son in 1980. Well, actually in 79, he was born in 80. And I decided that at age 36, this was an opportunity to become a parent that I may not ever have again. Uh, so I decided to go ahead with the pregnancy and become a single mother. At that time, we didn't have the concept of by choice. Um, so I just said, I'm going to be a single mother. And my son's father was not interested in having a family, but he did wish me good luck and said I'd be a wonderful mother, which was very nice. Um, and to be honest, I didn't have any idea what being a single mother would be like, but I'd always wanted children. And I thought it can't be that hard. Lots of people do it. So I did it. That's awesome. Um, thank you so much for being here with us today. I know Aisha and I have chatted with you previously, and we both credit you as being the founding mama of this movement. And your book was one of the first books I know I read when I was starting this journey to be an SOC. And your platform has been instrumental in not just my journey, but other SMCs. So I'm very thankful every day that this path of motherhood was an option for me. And I'm not sure I would have considered it had it not been for, you know, the strong international community that you really created back in the 80s. Well, and and I concur, and I'm I'm fangirling throughout this entire experience because, you know, my girls would not exist. Um, I I I recall um, I tell this story quite often um, in our space that you know the the amount of information, the experience, the 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 relationships that I built from being in the SMC space, I carry it with me. I still have longtime friends. My kids are having long-term friends with their kids, and it's it's just been awesome. And I certainly would not have had my second daughter um, had I not been in the space and just knew the broad range of options that were open to me. And so I, you know, I'm so glad to have the opportunity to say thank you. Um, and you, you've done an awesome job, you know, um, being a mom, but also helping to inspire moms. And so thank you. Oh, my pleasure, really. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so let's jump into it. We got questions. We've got our listeners who I'm sure are like, ah, James. Yeah, on. I know. Um, I hope other people are fangirling <laughs> at home or from their car, and they're like, yes, she's they're talking to Jade. All right, so so let let's dive into um, um, some of the questions that we have. So we know that single mothers have existed for like centuries and and for decades, but you coined the term single mother by choice. And I guess we're we're curious about how you arrived at the term and what motivated you to kind of create the space, right? Because we're all like little individuals living our own lives, but then we become the the parent of a movement. And how does that happen? Mm-hmm. Well, I actually never intended to start a movement. I just was having some ideas in the first year of my son's life that nobody really understood what it was like to be parenting totally on your own without a second parent available, even somewhere in the world, to uh, share some of the decision making and to understand what I was going through. And I just wanted to meet some other women who were doing the same thing, raising a baby all by themselves um, to give me support. And also I thought it'd be good for my son as he was growing up to see other families like ours so that he didn't feel that we were the only family like that. So I just found by word of mouth some six other women or five other women who were in the same situation as me who I didn't know. And we started meeting informally. But then the movement part came because the media discovered us. You, you oh, it's a double-edged sword too. <laughs> it's like good and bad. <laughs> yes, it's a long, uh, long story. But the media really made us um, a movement because they wrote about us. People kept contacting us. I got a re- offer to write a book. I wrote a, and so it just took off. But um, I'm very happy it did. But honestly, it wasn't my intention. Yeah, well, uh, well, I'm happy it did. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. So thank you. So what do you think distinguishes an SMC from like a traditional single mother by or single mother by p- perhaps chance? Sure. Well, especially back then, if you said you were a single mother and you were 30 something, people figured you were divorced. I mean, it was just an assumption. And there was a dad somewhere, even if he wasn't in the home. So you had somebody who was involved and gave some support, either emotional or financial or both, and shared some of the responsibility. No weekends off for a single mother by choice, no other parent to share decision-making. If you've chosen this path, the woman who is a single mother by choice is parenting alone. So we decided that we needed to distinguish ourselves in the sense that we did not go through a divorce. And that's how the term came about. Did you call them donors or is that something that is more like a now thing? Yes, in the original group in my living room, I was the only one who could, oh, no, that's not true. There were two of us who conceived with an actual person that we knew. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the others had adopted and two or three of the others used donor insemination. And it was called artificial insemination in those days. And one of the first things we all agreed on was we didn't like that term because there was nothing artificial about our children. Oh, so yeah, totally. We, we decided that there was a donor, so we preferred to call it donor insemination because artificial insemination, if you Google it, is used a lot in um, animal reproduction and 
that kind of thing, not so much really about human mm-hmm. reproduction. It just didn't sit right with us. I'm just envisioning so y'all sitting around <laughs> with coffee. And like, you know, it's it's amazing because like now, you know, 40 years later, it's taken off and it's a thing that I think is like somewhat um, widely known. And so it's fascinating to kind of imagine you all sitting in your living room with like coffee, like, you know, talking about like what you did and didn't like about how people were um, kind of labeling yeah, and it was actually a long time until that phrase changed from artificial insemination to donors. It took a long time. But I think now it's pretty much more pervasive than the artificial term. So I do have a question. So in the SMC space, you either love the term SMC or you hate the term SMC. And so, and I think people get hung up on the choice part. Um, and I've had conversations where people are like, well, you know, I was in a relationship and, you know, I, I had my baby and I chose, you know, to, 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 to parent my child. And so can you talk a little bit about um, the, the, I guess the, the fine grain kind of uh, distinction? Um, Cause in my mind, I'm like, okay, what distinguishes me from um, a traditional single mom might be like the planning. Like I have a detailed plan. So I would be like, you know, SMP, right? right? And so can you talk about the choice part of SMC? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked because a lot of people misunderstand that term. A lot of people say, well, you're choosing to be alone. Like, what's that about? Mm -hmm. Like, no, we're choosing to become a single parent. Right. And we're not... What the, our intent was, was to separate ourselves from divorced single mothers. Mm-hmm. So we're not a divorced single mother. We're a single mother who chose to be a single mother, planned it often, although I didn't exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of the time, people did put a lot of effort and work and money into becoming a single parent. It was an active choice they were making to raise a child on their own at the beginning, you know, whether they involved get involved with somebody later on or not was totally an open possibility. But we wanted to be clear that we weren't divorced moms that were going through trauma, that were grieving the loss of a marriage, that were um, counting on somebody else every other weekend to help us out with, um, you know, the child care uh, visitation or whatever, that we were really doing this as a single only, meaning single only, Mm-hmm. parent right not not divorce single right right so this okay. is uh i feel like we have a uh <laughs> we have a concept for an amazing documentary like evolution of smcs over the decades <laughs> all right so one of the reasons we created mocha smc was because we've been a part of the larger smc community for some time and we were starting to feel as though there was a need to address the intersection between black motherhood and smc When these issues came up in mixed forums, it became clear that Black women weren't in a safe space to have these conversations. What is your approach to creating safe spaces to balance the different perspectives brought into the SMC space? Well, certainly um, our online forum and our chapters are very welcoming spaces. And our intent and our purpose, as we define it, is to provide support and information to anyone who's thinking about this possibility or has already decided to become a single mother by choice. And as much as we welcome differences of opinion, we do ask for people to not be argumentative, not be disrespectful, 
However, given that we are in the real world, some people can't seem to do that, uh, can't communicate as civilly as we might want, don't realize even the impact of their words. Um, and sometimes feelings get hurt and, and uh, people are upset. We try to keep it to a minimum. We have moderation, um, but it's often after the fact when, you know, just like the rest of the world, our forum is imperfect. You know, I think we certainly see people coming into the space at all different stages of their decision. And, and I think it's interesting. It's interesting that you come with a, a therapist background and like a, a social work background, because I think that you probably spot this a lot quicker than maybe some others where like sometimes people will bring their own trauma into the space. And so it'll, um, you know, both like triggering other people and then also getting triggered and not really understanding right. that they've been triggered. So it's, um, you know, I'm, I'm interested, uh, you, you've obviously been doing this for a lot of years, you know, so you, you have probably become pretty adept at like <laughs> trying to clamp down on it before it starts brewing. So I, I, I like it. Um, well, it's, it's, it's interesting um, being in the space where, I think what you bring to the space is your your the lens in which you view the world, right? And for some of uh, for for some of the the women, if your if your social circles are not broad, you have unchecked views on things. Right. And you know, typically what we get where I see the biggest clashes will be, you know, with school and you know perceptions of you know um, children of color and neighborhoods of color. And I think that that's where we've seen the biggest dust-ups in the group where someone might type on their keyboard or on their phone with an unchecked perspective or opinion and have no clue how that might sound or be perceived by others. And, you know, and in our space, you know, we've got a broad range of people from just different backgrounds and it hits differently depending on where you are or what experiences you've had. Um, And so that's where I've seen kind of like um, the bigger, you know, dust-ups. And, and then in more recent, you know, years, as we um, have evolved, I guess, um, culturally in race relations, we're starting to see that come more to the forefront where people feel more comfortable saying, this is not cool, this is not all right. Um, and I think that that was one of the motivating factors for me to kind of straddle the two worlds between um, the National Forum and MOCA SNC is that, you know, in some spaces where it might be perceived as safe, you know, safety mm-hmm. is kind of in the eyes of the beholder. And there, there are some conversations I'm just not going to have in the national forum because I want to keep civil, right? And then there are places where I will go to heal my wounds because I'm just like, man, that was that was a burn, you know? And so, um, but on that note, um, now that Hera and I um, admin a space and we've done it for three years, we are starting to see some subtle changes and evolution in our own spaces, things like, you know, um, demographics and, you know, some shifts are more subtle than others. Have you seen um, some of the same or similar shifts happening in the, the national SNC forum space? Absolutely. Very much so. I mean, our organization is 40 years old this year. So, mm-hmm. you know, at first we were really seen as a fringe group of radical women, even though we didn't identify as that. That's how we uh-huh. were perceived. Um, and at the beginning, early, let's say 10 years, we were pretty much a group of mid-30s white heterosexual women from the two coasts. Mm-hmm. 
but that has gradually evolved so that we've become much more diverse in terms of race, age, sexual preference, geographic level, and income, mm-hmm. all of which I think make it a richer place for people, the online forum where everybody is together, especially uh, as opposed to the local chapters, which reflect their local communities more. Mm-hmm. But it's an amazing opportunity to get to know and understand a whole diverse range of people. Right. And so what would you say is the biggest shift you've seen in the space over the 40 years? Well, certainly the racial change is a big shift, which I'm really happy about, um, because we're reflecting more of the real world. Mm -hmm. And the other big changes are the age range has at both ends. It's gone lower earlier. So women are coming in in their late 20s now. And also at the other end of the age range, women are coming in in their 40s, especially because fertility treatments have become more available, more successful. And women, you know, who've had a hard time coming to this decision, coming in a little late now actually have a lot more hope than perhaps they did 30, 40 years ago, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yes, I will say I always tell people that, like, regardless of whether or not they find us and actually come through, you know, follow through with being an SMC, I think that it's great seeing some it's great in many ways, seeing a demographic shift to a little bit younger for women to start think about it, thinking about it, because I think that it gives them some power in their in their choices. Right. So when they're dating, they can even make better decisions dating because they know like, hey, this is an option for me, even if I decide, you know, to, to continue dating for a certain amount of time, I'm no longer dating with the idea that like I have to procreate with, with a guy. This is not the only option. My goal early on when I realized we were becoming a movement was that at, I thought this was pie in the sky, but I think it's actually happening that women in their 20s would know that they had another option besides a relationship in which to have the experience of parenthood. Yeah. And we're yeah. hearing that from the 20-somethings coming in. They're saying, I just wanted to check out all my options and see whether this is right for me or whether I can't do it alone. You know, and it's also really and and it's also okay. kind of putting their fertility at the forefront of the conversation and in their hands, right? Because the moment you start That's thinking, it. "Hey, I want to have a baby," you start engaging with your medical teams differently, right? You start having you start initiating the conversations, like you know, can we do our you know our our blood testing, our blood work, or day three testing, right? And you're 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 doing that sooner rather than later, so then you can start making different choices, like you know, day to date or not to date, you know, career choices, you know, do I accelerate going back for a PhD or do I hold off? And so now you're a a woman's fertility is kind of at the forefront as opposed to I need a relationship. And so I'm focused on that relationship and then get a surprise, you know, at the end of it, like, I thought I could do this. Um, I, I, I will say, you know, um, I talk a lot um, in the Mocha SNC space about 
what I gained from being in the um, the national SMC space, which was just understanding options, right? What questions to ask my medical team, what the possibilities are, just so that I can do my own research in my own time um, and mm-hmm. get my head into the conversation. Um, yeah. So, but we are in our space also seeing um, trending younger. Um, women are coming to the space more in their, their mid-20s as opposed to mid-30s. Um, and then they're also, so with, with some of the younger demographic finances, you know, are sometimes an option. And they're also broadening the conversation of, you know, the whole donor part, right? Because now they're expanding to, to different options in the age of social media. You know, they're, they're taking from going the mainstream of a sperm bank because, you know, of some ethical issues or financial issues. And so now they're broadening that conversation as well, which adds an interesting kind of dynamic um, into the group. We um, They introduce a lot of known donor um, types of situations. Um, and so some of the dust-ups and clashes we will get is how a known donor is being defined because that could be on a spectrum as well. And so whenever there are clashes that happen, they would be like, well, the, the creator of the SMC space used a known donor. Um, and so, so yeah. So can you talk a little bit about, about that? Because we're, we're like, well, we always go back and we pull the definition in. Um, so I think that that's a question that some of our listeners might have. How, how does Jane define a known donor and um, kind of, navigate that whole conversation yeah like what's the difference between a known donor and a daddy it depends on the known donor the difference is as you and that person define it so he could be a daddy would not be married to the mother that's Mm -hmm. not at all uncommon in our world Um, or he could just be someone who helps the woman get pregnant and says goodbye and good luck as was um the case for many people also in our early group, especially because a lot of us actually, to be honest, didn't even know there was such a thing as donor insemination early on. It was like we had to educate ourselves about this. But um, there is a trend, I think, to start out wanting a known donor very much because there's still a leap that you have to take in giving up this image of the child having two people that are parents, as opposed to having one person that's a parent. And so I think that is the initial interest probably is because they can't imagine, especially until they get into your space or our space, that you really can do this on your own. Like um, it's, it's not something they, especially if they don't know anybody who used a donor insemination process, it's kind of hard to take that leap to imagine that you, can do that and that it's fine and the child's going to be fine as all we can get to that all kinds of imaginations about you know um using a sperm bank and a sperm donor it's like weird right yeah. when you first hear it um but actually as they get in our experience anyway as they get more into the group and they hear more about it they seem to feel a little more reassured that actually the women are doing it and doing it fine. The children seem fine. And maybe in some ways it's a, it's a little more complicated to use a known donor. And that maybe they didn't consider at the beginning either. 
Like he could sue for child support. He could even sue for custody. You can have the kind of battles that you have in a marriage without the love and the sex. I well, mean, bad, you know, bad. Bad. <laughs> really good. that sounds terrible. Yeah. So personally, I'm not a fan of a known donor, even though I actually got pregnant accidentally by someone I knew mm-hmm. um, because I was very lucky that the man wasn't um, difficult and and wished me well and never interfered in any way. I mean, I think he would have been welcome if he mm-hmm. wanted to participate. I wasn't against him being involved, but um, I knew that we'd be fine on our own. Somehow I just trusted that, partially in naivete and partially, yeah. you know, otherwise. So we definitely, you know, we definitely have our fair share of women who come to the space, like still thinking and, and, and sort of straddling that fence. And I think, you know, much of it is like the struggle um, with the concept that their child won't have a father. One of the things that you said previously during one of our um, other conversations was uh, you, I think you defined the, whether or not it was a, uh, an SMC by how your child views the donor, Right. And I, and I really liked how you put that. If you could share that with our audience, that would be great. Right. I think the child grows up, at least at the beginning, knowing that he or she has one parent. And the donor, if it's introduced very early, which it should be, is the concept of a nice man or a generous man who helped make him or her. Mm-hmm. So from the child's point of view, there's nobody called daddy around, whereas most of his friends or her friends have someone in their family they call daddy, whether they're living with them or not. That's the big difference from the child's point of view, that there's nobody called daddy, because nobody is sharing the child rearing decisions with the mother. That's, I mean, our definition of a single mother by choice, which I guess is important to include, is a woman who decides to become a mother, knowing that at least at the outset, she would be the sole parent, meaning makes all the decisions. Yeah, I ask sometimes for women, I'm just like, okay, you know, can you move without asking another parent, (laughs) right? Um, You know, do you receive child support or could receive child support from another human, (laughs) right? Right. Uh, And, and, you know, I think those are really important questions because it, it, solo really means solo. Like you are the only person financially responsible and no one else in this world feels that responsibility as a parent um, to your child. That's great. So I want to, I was going to say, we don't rule out uh, some kind of financial help if the person is not given mm -hmm. or wanting parenting decision-making responsibilities. Mm -hmm. The idea is that you avoid battles over religion, Mm -hmm. schooling, you know, all kinds of philosophical things that come up in child rearing, that that the stress of those things is not going to be in the household. Yeah, I know. I know one of the things that's important for me is having that consistency, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Because we we know when we talk about um, outcomes, right? And we'll get to that a little bit later. You know, for me, um, the the best thing that I could possibly do um, for my girls is to make sure I keep their home environment safe and consistent, right? right? And then they're comfortable enough to thrive and become who they are meant to be. And so that's a big key factor. 
No one's exactly. coming. That's no the one most important. Right. That the stability of the home is the most inf- important factor in the outcome of children. Yeah. So let's shift a little bit to the importance of counseling. So in the SMC spaces, we encounter people who resent the requirement to attend a counseling session, which many of our clinics require for people slash couples using donated sperm, eggs, or embryos. So some of them are hesitant to take the step to see a therapist and talk through this decision. In addition to being an author, you're also a licensed social worker. So I wanted to know, like, from your perspective, why you think this counseling session is really critical. Sure. Unless the person who's doing the counseling has an agenda, which they shouldn't have. I mean, the, the definition of a counselor and a therapist is someone who should be neutral and who also is... Um, interested in the well-being of the person that they are trying to help. So some once in a while, we do hear about a therapist who is in this role who has an agenda. But most of the time, and I've done some of these myself, uh, the goal is to find out if the person has thought about all the things that we're talking about and has, you know, felt prepared to deal with them. You know, what are you going to say about the father, donor, whatever your situation is? Um, What do you tell your child and when? Uh, How do you feel about doing this alone? What terms are you comfortable with? Donor, biological father, you know, just really for the benefit of the future mother-to-be is the goal. It's not really to judge or to even tell the person, yes, this is good for you idea or not good idea for you. You know, it's just really supposed to be helpful. Mm-hmm. And some, I have to say some of the things that come up about that sound like somebody who shouldn't be a counselor or a right. therapist. Yeah, I had a terrible experience with mine. It was actually highly triggering. And it was because, I mean, I, I felt going through it that the person was more judgmental about my history, considering I had just lost my son, than they should have been. And so luckily, I am a huge proponent of therapy and continued therapy, especially for somebody who's had trauma. And so at the time, I was in therapy with another very, um, very great therapist who ended up writing her a letter and telling her to stand down because she was just, I mean... It was less about, you know, have you thought about this and more about like, well, you know, this, this is like her thing was like, you're so young. And I was like, it really doesn't matter how old I am. (laughs) It's none of your business. Um, And I think she just perceived that, you know, it was her role to make a judgment about my grief process or like whether or not I was, you know, doing this at the right time. And I, and I thought it was really not appropriate. Yeah, my my um, therapy session, I really I, I I liked it. And I'm a big proponent, like, I, I cringe and I get nervous for the moms who come in the space. And it's just like, yeah, yeah, I, I that therapy session, it bothers me, it irks me, it irritates me. And I'm just like, well, yeah, I kind of get that. But it's it is really there to help you. If you get a good um, therapist to kind of talk it through, that's probably the only time where you're going to have somebody there that is supposed to listen to you and and, and facilitate the thought process for you without judgment, theoretically. 
perfectly, right? You talk to your family, you talk to your friends, it's always going to be tinged with judgment, you know, and then I think yep. some, some people balk at the the cost, because I think it was like mm-hmm. 150, 250, because it was a, a, a person that the fertility clinic has on their list of people. Um, and it, you pay out of pocket. And so for me, I was just like, no, I'm not paying out of pocket. So I went through my EAP program um, at my company, because I'm just like, I'm paying this money, you know, is, is a clinic really going to say, I'm not going to work with you because you didn't pay this $150? Or are they going to say, I see you did, you did your due diligence, you did something, you know, okay, so let's go with that. So I did something that was um, unconventional, but was comfortable for me and my wallet. Um, And so but I found it really helpful um, in talking things through. Um, so Jane, what yeah. would be some, some red flags, um, that you would see if someone were to come to talk to you and say, I'm considering, um, this SMC path and, you know, um, but what would be some, some red flags? So, um, the hesitancy on, you know, I'm not sure I want to use a sperm bank. I want to use, you know, an ex partner. What would be some flags that might say, this is probably a good time to just pause and really think this through, uh, you know, a couple of months longer. Right. Just um, following up on your comments about this therapy session that's required, any good therapist will ask questions and uh, raise questions for the person to think about. Mm -hmm. So red flags could be things like, I hear you're talking about you want somebody who um, you would feel comfortable with as a partner and as a date Mm -hmm. or a potential spouse Mm -hmm. um what else what other qualities do you think about in terms of a donor you know do you think about um the child for example one of the more controversial things that comes up is um people wanting to choose donors of a different race Mm -hmm. this was um a hot discussion on the forum at one point because they were worried, um, the forum members were worried that this person was trying to create um, what the potential mother or future mother thought was a beautiful child. And they weren't thinking about what the child's being a mixed race child would have uh, impact on the child's life. Uh You know, this is something major. And it hadn't crossed their mind that they were, they were literally thinking about how beautiful the skin color was. Yes, yes, we, we, we get that a lot. Um, we get it some in our space, but in the larger um, SNC Facebook groups, and then on the national forum, we see it as well. And so we talk a lot about, you know, cultural competency, right? So once you you decide, I'm going to have this baby, and I'm going to as an SNC, and I'm going to choose a donor of a different race, which a lot of, you know, um, black SNCs have to do, um, due to the yeah. limited number of black donors, right? And so we're already conscious thinking of, okay, how do I navigate this? But I'm not sure um, if a lot of um, non-Black um, moms or non-moms of color, you know, they're just thinking like, I'm going to raise my child. I'm going to love my child. My family's going to love my child. And they're not even really thinking like there's a cultural competency to be able to understand if a microaggression happens against your child or a macroaggression and that some things right. can 
can possibly not be as innocent as you would think having navigated the world in a white body um, or, you know, so just being able to, to advocate for your child and protect your child in that way, um, whereas you possibly won't find out until the child is an adult to say, mom, you know, that wasn't cool. That, that really hurt me when that person said that. And I, you know, I, I really wish you had said something to stop it. Right. And so there's that whole thing about cultural competency. I think many parents also have like a reckoning with race themselves, you know, regardless of whether or not your kid is a different race than you, when you are living through, you know, you're, you're basically going back through experiences and your kid is experiencing them. Like, I mean, many of us are like, I will cut you (laughs) if you do something to my kid. Right. Uh And so when you are in situations where like, you know, Aisha and I always talk about, it goes down on the playground, you know, and like a racial situation comes up that your kid is, is, is somewhat involved in regardless of, you know, what side your kid is on. I think as parents, we just get so defensive and then often like, causes these situations to just devolve really quickly because it's so emotional for us. And, you know, even if your kid is, if your kid says something, it's like, we know it's a reflection of us. Right. And we may not have realized that about ourselves. Right. Until it happens. And then you're like, Oh no, like it's, it's hard. You know, it's really hard. Yeah. So much of parenting is in the moment. Right. And in a, in a moment you could realize, Oh my gosh, I've said these racist things. I've thought them in my head and you now have a biracial child. And it's just like, and so then it's like, you're having that overwhelming rush of emotions, you know, and then are you, are you there? Are you present, you know, for your kids need in that moment? Right. And so there, there's just a lot of different dynamics at play. And so um, for anyone who would be considering um, using a donor of a different race, really kind of take that step back, use the whole nine months, you know, to kind of think, you know, have I said some things, you know, could I potentially say some things? How might I react in these different situations just so that you have taken care of your emotions in it and you can be there for your kid? Right. I mean, that is the underlying issue that I, in terms of red flags, is people not thinking about the fact that this is going to be a little human being who is going to be out in the world and encountering uh, people and living their life, choosing the path and the life that they want. This is not going to be an extension of you. It's not going to be uh, someone to meet your needs. You know, uh, it's going to be themselves. They're going to be themselves. So it is, that is a big red flag for people sometimes going into this as as if they're going to create what they need. Right. And Mm -hmm. not really see that the child's needs have to be paramount. And then a funny, let's face it, kids go through phases where they're cute and not so cute. You know, how are you going to feel? (laughs) How are you going to feel when those adult teeth start to come in? And, you know, and then it's just like, you know, my kid is no longer that beautiful biracial baby that I thought I was creating. Now I got to deal with that kid, you know, that, 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 the essence of that little person, you know, how, how will you fare then? I mean, it's a big, a big change in one's life to think about somebody other than oneself for the first time right yeah have we talked about outcomes for smc children no we yep we 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 kind of brushed i think we brushed on it a little bit earlier about just you know what 
we, we all have like read, you know, pieces about like single moms. And I think a lot of times the media will have us feel like, Oh, if you have a child by yourself, like your kid is doomed yeah. to like prison. Right. Um, and so oh, yeah. I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on, um, you know, outcomes and, and what this looks like for our kids. I know you've been doing this here for 40 minutes or 40 years. So you've seen lots of mm-hmm. SMC families come through and, you know, what would you tell aspiring mothers about outcomes? Our kids, how do they do? Yeah, it's kind of shocking that um, despite all the predictions of doom that I got early on, the outcomes have been way better than we expected. Our children, the children of single mothers by choice, have actually seemed to do better in terms of their development and um, outcome than children who are from divorced homes and equally well to two-parent homes that aren't divorced. So that shocked us. There's um, apparently being a really connected, loving parent who wants to be a parent is a huge plus in the child's life. I would agree. I mean, my heart warms when my daughter is like, mom, do you think you're a good mom? And I was like, Oh gosh, is this a trick question? Because six-year-olds, they will bring the shade. And I'm just like, <laughs> yes, they will. this is a trick question. I was like, I think I am, but what do you think? And she's like, right. I think you're a good mom. I think you're a wonderful mom. And you know when a six-year-old Aww. says wonderful, yeah. it's mm-hmm. the sweetest thing ever. That's and so <laughs> it's kind of like being an ally. Like you can't you can't label yourself an ally. Like somebody who's underrepresented has to label you as an ally. So like, I feel like as a mom, you can't label yourself as a good mom. You kind of like have to have your kids label you as a good mom. And, and until you, until that has happened, like you haven't arrived. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the proof of the pudding is at the eating stage, right? It's, it's really how the child ends up seeing you. So, so, so I also, so as I parent my girls, I tend to think in terms of like, sometimes you just get tired of the little fingers on you and I want to say no. And then I realize at some point the roles will be reversed. I will be an old lady wanting to snuggle with my adult daughter and, you know, and how do I want her to treat me in those moments? And then I quickly make my adjustments or I go back and I apologize and I snuggle. And so now that you have an adult son, how, 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 how does that work, you know, in terms of, of the dynamics and, you know, kind of, you know, being that mom in the moment and now being on the sidelines, watching and hoping you get, you know, some of the love and some of the attention and how, how, how does that work? Well, that you are very wise because that is exactly right. The way you parent your child is what you will get. That's it. I mean, there's no better way to say it. And whatever faults I may have had, I was dedicated to parenting well. And uh, my son has grown up to be an extremely loyal person. Um, very much there for his wife, for me. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just I exactly what I had hoped, although it wasn't even conscious at the time, as it seems to be with you. Mm-hmm. He turned out to be the man I hoped he would be. Oh, I'm tearing so up. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I think uh, I think it's great because, I mean, we both, Aisha and I both have daughters. And, you know, I know there's lots of moms who come to the space and they are extra anxious about having a son. And, 
you know, I think because yes. you, you know, it's like there are even questions like, how am I going to teach him to pee? And I'm like, you'll just do it. Right. <laughs> but like, you know, I, I think, I think it, it's, it's really great to hear from a boy mom whose boy turned out to be everything she hoped. Right. Oh. And you can find nice men to be helpful in your child's life if they're trustworthy and loving. And that's a real plus. I had one and I, I can't tell you how important he's been in our life. So I know we, we, we talked like, you know, we could talk for hours. And so as we're starting, as we're starting to wind down. So hindsight being 2020, kind of kind of looking back on your SMC journey, mm-hmm. the journey of an organization. Is there anything that you would have um, done differently, might have navigated differently um, looking back? Well, I don't know if this is what you mean, but we were all, you know, so petrified that our children would hate us for having done this and having brought them into the world without a dad. And it turns out that that was a big myth. The the donor insemination issue is a big issue for kids from a two-parent family where they weren't told. It is pretty much a non-issue for our kids. And people are surprised to hear that, that uh, they still come into our organization worried that their child's going to be angry with them. Well, your child is going to be angry with you, of course, uh, especially when they're teenagers and they kind of... Teenagers hate everyone. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. They start to, you know, lose their innocence. But um, yeah, it seems this is a fairly minimal issue. The kids, if anything, you know, they realize they're not dumb. They realize they wouldn't be here if you hadn't had them the way you had them. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that is a, a big thing I wish we had known early on so we could have reassured each other and everybody else that this is not really um, going to be such a big problem. We were really scared. I think that's like a really important thing to note, though. I mean, you guys didn't have the benefit of um, data like we have now, you know, and I, I appreciate that. And I think that's what makes you a trailblazer because you were doing it when like, it really wasn't something people did. And um, we were winging it. Yeah. (laughs) You were just like, you were just doing it. Right. Which like is so great. And um, I think also, you know, the, the, the data that has been able to be collected over the last 40 years has made it a more approachable option for many of us because we see, okay, people have actually done this before. This isn't going to be one of those like experiments where I'm like, okay, kid, let's hope everything goes well. Um, So I do think that that's like definitely important to note because, you know, as nervous as many of us are, and I still think that, you know, there is legitimacy to being nervous about it, um, you know, based on maybe you don't have the best support system or whatever. Um, That's right. But uh, I, I think, the great thing is that we do have a lot of data and we do, if you ignore the whole, you know, reports about, about single moms being dooming kids that I'm sure will continue to plague the media cycles and you actually look at the data, you'll realize that this is, this is an option that you can take and your kids will be just fine. Yeah. And I think, I think, which you said just reassured probably like a whole generation of SNCs to come, right? And and kind of putting it in perspective that sperm donor choice, that tiny little 
five minutes that they spend inseminating you is such a small fraction of the lifespan of a parent. And, you know, you spend so much time getting your adult self okay with that. And the kids are like playing and breaking stuff, you know? And so they're not even really, you know, too worried. I think if we follow the, um, the trusted, um, advice in the SNC space, yeah. tell them, tell them early, tell them often, you know, there is no feeling of loss, you know, they will have their feelings because they're human. Some of those feelings will be, you know, normal um, adjustment um, to understanding what their story is. Some of it will be um, pre-adolescent angst, teenage angst, and then just some, you know, resentment, but we will probably see the whole spectrum of adults you know, that we see out there in the general public in terms of their attitudes toward their upbringing and how they were conceived and created. Yeah, they're going to be angry. It's a developmental necessity. Mm -hmm. And the one thing you can prevent them being angry about is by telling them the honest truth, as you said, about their story early on and often. Because the kids who are upset about the donor insemination piece in the married families usually were lied to for quite a long time. Sometimes don't find out till they're teens. And so they're angry about being lied to. They're not angry about their conception, actually. In my old age of 40 plus, you know, and once I became a mom, I started to think a lot about legacy. And so, you know, so my question to you would be, what do you think or what do you want your legacy to be? Well, um, I hope, I don't know, what it will be, but I hope it's that I was able to help women to feel empowered to make a choice about becoming a parent, and particularly single women. Although sometimes I honestly think that we should have more choice, married or single. There's a lot of pressure if you're married to become a mother. Single women have the pressure to wait. And so I, I do think that choice makes you feel, having choices makes you feel empowered. And so I hope that I've given single women that feeling of, of really being empowered to make a conscious and deliberate choice about parenting. That's so great. Well, I truly appreciate that you've given us your time today, Jane. And, you know, like I said in the beginning, you have been a trailblazer and uh, for, for many of us and really have made this option accessible and normalized, which is good for not only us, but also for our kids. And so I truly appreciate the time. I agree. Uh Thank you. My greatest pleasure is, other than talking about my son and daughter-in-law, is talking about SMC. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Like my second baby. Yeah, (laughs) I feel the same way. (laughs) Well, Pod, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. If you like what you heard, share us with your girlfriends. We'd love to hear your thoughts. So tell us what you thought of this episode on social media. On Facebook, we are at Mocha SMC Podcast. And on Twitter and Instagram, we are at Mocha SMC. You can find additional information on the topics from the podcast at our website at mochasmc.com. Till next time, pod. Bye now.